Philippians chapter 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You place us in storms and darkness so that we can experience your grace in our lives, Lord. This is so to reveal your glory, not to make us suffer, so help us to grow in you. Instead of uh, distorting the truth, help us to repent and let us fix our hearts and eyes on you. We're all so fickle-hearted, re reaching out to you when desperate, but disobeying you when our expectations are fulfilled. So may your love and compassion fill our hearts. Fill us with the spirit of obedience. Let us ex experience your intimate love in our daily lives. At this time, we lift up Pastor Yeo into your hands. Would you use him almightly? Would you empower him to speak the truth? And would you continue to guide him in everything that he does? And would you also pour out your blessings upon his family? And we lift up the missionaries around the world, especially those who are in India, China, and North Korea. They dedicate their lives serving you, endangering and sacrificing their lives. Would you bless them and their families? With the living water flowing into their lives, let them know that they have special place in your kingdom. Bless those who need your help. Restore those whose hearts are broken. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, let's all take a seat and welcome everyone to our Uptown Worship Service. Great to be able to worship with all of you guys. Um, and yeah, it's just one of the highlights of the worship service. I mean, there's so many is during our pre-service prayer where we get to pray for our service and really ask the Holy Spirit to cover over every aspect of our worship service. We also pray for various individuals. And it's great because, you know, from the pre-service prayer, we get to see God answer these prayers right before our very own eyes. And I just want to encourage all of us, uh, yeah, come, come a little earlier and let's pray and let's prepare our hearts and let's pray for our church. Uh, we also pray for our missionaries and so on and so forth. Uh, but again, just want to welcome everyone to our worship service. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm uh, a pastor here at Uptown. And yeah, I'd love to get to know some of you guys. It looks like we are getting more newcomers and new faces and we'd love to make this more of a personal, relational thing, because we're not just a church entity, but we're really a church family. Uh, we're going to begin with the time of word, which is going to be found in 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you are turning to it, um, yeah, I just want to give a brief recap and context of where we're at with 1 Kings chapter 18. And really, uh, at this point, we are finally at the final showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So if you haven't been a part of us for the past few weeks, Elijah issued some fighting words to King Ahab and Israel because they've been following after idols. And he said there's going to be a drought and there's not going to be neither rain nor dew until the sound of my word, until the word of God changes this. And in Israel, they suffered a drought for almost three years. So if you can just think about an agricultural culture, uh, they're pretty much crippled at every facet of their society. And during these three years, God is miraculously providing for Elijah, whether it's through a raven or through ravens, whether it's through a widow, whether, not raven here, but ravens, plural, um, or whether Elijah is able to resurrect the widow's son from the dead. Uh, I mean, it's really exciting. And after these three years, 
it's apparent that God has been training and discipling Elijah for this final showdown. And he is doing this confrontation against Elijah on the one hand and all the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah on the other hand. And it's very dramatic. And, you know, before we read the passage, I do just want to mention what is the significance of all of this. Because, again, all of this makes a good story. You could probably do like a movie and it would be pretty entertaining. But what does this have to do with us, our lives, and our relationship with God? Well, this passage and what's been really reinforced throughout these passages is for God's people. He is so committed to his people that he will place us, even as our sister Sua prayed, he will place us in storms of life. Not because he's distant, but because he uses these difficulties in order to prepare us to train us, to make us more like Christ, to mature us. Conversely, towards God's people, not only will he use even difficulties to refine our faith, but on the other hand, he sees us beyond the season, even in the midst of our victories, um, even in the midst of breakthroughs, there are still some character flaws in our hearts. And we're going to see that in Elijah. And despite the fact that we have these character flaws in our hearts, God will nonetheless perform miracles in our lives. God will nonetheless graciously open door after door, use us in powerful and in extraordinary ways. Um, and again, it just reinforces the idea that our God, towards his people, he loves them so faithfully. He sees them beyond that particular season. And what does this have to do with us? For all of us who are in Christ, that means the way God is so steadfastly, patiently loving Israel and Elijah is the same type of love that God has for us who are in Christ as well. So even in our storms and difficulties, we can be certain that God has a plan. Even in the midst of our victories where our character flaws are somewhat hidden, God will nonetheless still love us. So we're going to unpack all of that. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the passage. <clears throat> Uh, Father, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, your word is so timely. You have proven the truth of your word uh, time and time again. And we are just so eagerly anticipating how your spirit is going to use this passage to make sense of our lives, to breathe hope, to allow us to not be so overwhelmed by ourselves or our circumstances, but instead that we can look to Jesus we can look to your faithfulness. We can look to your steadfast love. So Holy Spirit, may you do your good work through the word. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So like I mentioned, the passage is 1 Kings chapter 18. It's going to be verses 20 to 40. So this is the, the dramatic showdown between Elijah and the prophets. So starting in verse 20, again, 1 Kings chapter 18. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. These are the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it is Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer Elijah a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophet are 450 men. So he's significantly outnumbered, right? Um, and we're going to come back to verse 22 eventually, maybe next week, where he says, I, 
even I am left a prophet of the Lord. Does anybody recall like why that's kind of weird that he would say that? Something from last week's passage? Anybody? Yeah? Right. There are other prophets in the camp. I mean, just the passage before, Elijah met Obadiah, who is a prophet of the Lord. And Obadiah is probably thinking, like, am I a joke to you? Like, I'm also a prophet of the Lord. I hit 100 people. And that fact is repeated twice in the last passage. And that becomes very significant when we think a little bit more about Elijah's character flaws. So I just wanted to plant that seed. But let's continue on with this passage. So verse uh, 23. Let two bulls be given to us. So a bull for Elijah and a bull for the prophets of Baal. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it as well. So as you can imagine... The prophets of Baal, they have a bowl, they're cutting it to pieces, and they're going to put some firewood around it. Elijah is doing the same thing, and this is somewhat the showdown. Uh, Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God, and I call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Uh, Whoever answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered is well spoken. The rules seem pretty legit. Let's go for it. So verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So from morning till noon, so this is probably six hours, probably 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. is is the way they kind of break down their schedule. They're saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there is no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, because they've been doing this for about six hours. Cry aloud, for he is God, Elijah. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. He's saying he's going to the bathroom. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, or must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lanterns, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So at this point, Elijah is looking pretty good. You can sense some swagger. He's talking some smacks, talking some trash. Maybe your God is musing. Maybe your God is relieving himself, a.k.a. going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Um, And he's pretty confident, which is a little different than what we've seen of Elijah in chapter 17 which I'll unpack a little later. So let's continue on. So verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So Elijah said, Everybody, come around. He wants all the attention. He wants this to be a public spectacle. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones... He built an altar to the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, now this is very, very audacious of Elijah. Fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. 
Because again, the whole showdown is who, which bowl is going to be lit on fire. And he's saying, those, those four jars, fill it with water. And let's soak the pieces of wood. Because I want to make sure that all of you guys know unequivocally that the Lord is God. Does anybody know why else that would be very audacious for him to use four jars of water at this point? It's a drought. I mean, can they even, do they even have four jars of water? Maybe for emergency purposes. And again, Elijah has the confidence, the bonus, I would even say audacity. The water that all of you guys are parched for, let's fill up four jars and let's make this a spectacle. And then, uh, I'm sorry, uh, okay, so verse 34. Not only does he do it once, he said, do it a second time. So a total of eight jars. And they did it a second time. And he says, do it a third time. So now we're talking about 12 jars of water. And they did it a third time. I don't know where they got the water. But again, that just shows the boldness of Elijah. And the water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Lo and behold, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, despite all of the jars of water and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Wow. I mean, it's a really dramatic showdown. And Elijah has quite an abundant full of swagger and confidence. Not only is he talking smack on the prophets of Baal, but he's making this a public spectacle. Gather around me, not only four jars of water, but really 12 jars of water, soaking up that bowl, and God answers. And as we sang, God is able. He is so powerful. And he showcases his power in such a clear emphatic way that even the prophets of Baal, they can't, they, they're not even going to argue. They're not even going to try, they're, they're, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Um, and there's so many things that we can learn from this passage. I mean, I think the, the first immediate thing is just how powerful God is and how he is indeed sovereign. Um, you know, like I mentioned maybe a few weeks ago, um, actually, let, does anybody remember like the Baal? Who, who is he the God of? Anybody remember? God of thunder, right? And God of thunder represents rain. So that's why the, uh, Israel, they were worshiping Baal because they wanted more agricultural success. And here, Elijah is saying, you're trusting in these idols because they're so-called known for water and prosperity? Well, let me tell you, I'm going to issue a drought so that you recognize that your gods, your idols, they're feeble. And not only am I going to issue a drought, but after three years, I'm going to do this showdown and showcase how this God of thunder that you think is going to come down to light this bull on fire, not only can your God, are, is, is he impotent in terms of providing water, but he's impotent in providing the thunder that he's known for. 
but my God, he's able to. And similarly for ourselves, I think for a lot of us, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, I think we forget, you know, our God is so powerful. And yes, maybe none of us, we do Baal worship, but we do place our trust and our hope in other things, in idols, because these things are known for providing financial prosperity. Maybe it is so much hope that we place in our investments, in our work, in our retirement plan. And again, like investments, retirement plan, those are all good things. They're wise, prudent things. All of us, we should look into those things. I'm not suggesting that those are evil things, but are we placing our hope and trust in those things? Or are we ultimately placing our hope and trust in God and acknowledging, God, if you choose to use these things, then sure, but I'm not going to make these things an idol in my life. I mean, there's so many idols in our lives if we really think about it. When we think about just emotional and relational fulfillment, we idolize that. Whether it is us aspiring and striving after just trying to create that perfect family balance or in our own social networks. And yes, families, social networks, those are all beautiful things. I'm not downgrading those things. They're not evil per se, but we have a tendency to idolize those things. Are we ultimately trusting in other people to fulfill our emotional and relational needs? Or are we instead looking to the Lord God, saying He is Lord, He is God, He is sovereign over these areas of my life as well? Do we really recognize how powerful God is and how He is capable of providing for every single one of our needs? Not just the thunder and rain, but all the things that modern society, we idolize as well. Um, I want to zoom in a little further of, uh, in Elijah and kind of like what I mentioned earlier is, you know, one of the things that we've been learning in this sermon series is how faithful God is to his people. Um, I find this uh, so relevant because, you know, uh, if this was Elijah's first assignment, uh, he would have failed miserably. He would not have been able to rise to the occasion. He needed those three years being fed by ravens, by a widow, living in just obscurity. Uh, he needed that. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if, uh, if we've noticed, but you know, if you look at the way Elijah heals the widow's son. Let's take a quick look at that. If we, if we can turn to our Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 17. Very quite interesting. Because, you know, the, the sermon on that passage, I mentioned how Elijah was very quick to blame God. His heart was very fickle. But even in the way that he resurrected the widow's son, if you look at chapter 17, verse 19. Elijah said to the widow, give me your son. And Elijah, curiously, he took the widow's son from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. It's very curious. I, I don't know why scripture provided that detail. Elijah doesn't resurrect the widow's son right at that spot, but he takes him to where he lodges, which is a, a different house takes him to the upper chamber, away from the widow. And you see in verse 23, when after he revives him, 
and the details repeated again. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house of the widow, apparently. So it's very curious how when Elijah resurrects the widow's son, first of all, he's blaming God, so his faith is already fickle, but he doesn't do it in front of the widow. He has to take the widow's son back to his house, to his lodging place, up into the upper chamber. He resurrects him and then brings him back down and then takes him to the widow's house. I, I don't know why he does that, but it's definitely very different than what we see in what we just read in today's passage, where Elijah is uh, almost patronizing, very condescending, very public. He makes a whole showcase out of it. He's mocking the prophets. He said, gather around me. Everybody, I want you to gather around me. Let's do this final showdown. You take this bowl. I'll take this bowl. Let's soak it with four jars, eight jars, 12 jars of water. And what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 18 is a man who is just so full of boldness and confidence in God. Why? Well, it's not because he was born that way. Because we don't see an ounce of that confidence. We don't even see an ounce of that swagger when it comes to reviving the widow's son. Instead, with the widow's son, he's saying, okay, you know what? Let me take this son. Let me, let me just cross the street. Let me put him in my lodge. And then I'll come back to you. You see a completely different mentality. And the reason why I make such a uh, fuss about this is because, again, this is another spiritual window into the way that God is so patiently gently raising and maturing all of us. None of us are born like Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18. None of us are born that way. All of us, when it comes to push, comes to shove, we will cower in fear. Our fickleness will overtake us. But God, towards his people, is so patient. He will mature, and just like any parent who is a faithful parent, you will take the time to discipline, to disciple, to mature your child. Yes, maybe your child right out of the womb isn't ready to be an upstanding citizen and a contributor to society. But over the years, through the seasons, as you raise your child well, you can say, man, my child is ready for this world. And that is what God does for all of us. And it's not just Elijah. Uh, if you notice throughout Scripture, I mean, it's a pattern that is just so apparent that I think we overlook. You know, uh, I mentioned um, last week that we had our budget retreat this past weekend. Just so blessed. Just so blessed. Very challenged as well. And we can't wait from a leadership perspective to share some of the insights that we've gleaned to the rest of the congregation. But one of the things that uh, really stood uh, out, of the many things that stood out, is uh, Pastor John uh, from downtown shared a devotional. And he mentioned, you know, I mentioned Israel a lot how God sometimes makes them wander in the, the wilderness for a purpose. And he read the, the exact passage of how it would have been much more efficient for Israel to go beeline to the promised land. It would have been very efficient. It would have taken days, not years. But he doesn't. And he explicitly says because the people of God, they were not ready for war. The people of God, they would have feared their enemies because, again, they, were, they had a slave mindset for 400 years. And what God needed to do was, yes, he, they needed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And after those 40 years, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, you have finally learned that man does not live on bread alone. 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. These 40 years, you've learned that our God is our mighty warrior. He is the one who fights for us. These 40 years, your faith and your confidence and your trust in God has matured. So now you can enter into the promised land. We see this not only in Israel. I mean, I talk about Moses a lot, but even David. Have you ever thought about David? I mean, he, he, like, what was he doing as a shepherd boy? All those years watching sheep. And then out of nowhere, he's able to slay Goliath with a slingshot. Out of nowhere, David is the one who has written the majority of Psalms. All the praise songs that we sing throughout the centuries of God's people, they are rich, they're derivations of mostly David's Psalms. How did he learn to write such great Psalms? And how did he learn to slay Goliath? It's probably because as a shepherd boy, yes, it was a season of obscurity. He probably felt like, am I being trained to be a king as a shepherd boy? But as a shepherd boy, he probably played with a slingshot over and over again. And just making that as proficient as possible. So on the day of his battle against Goliath, it was just like, and he even said, just like how I saved the sheep from the hands of bears and lions, this, this is a cakewalk. Because during my years of obscurity, God has been training me. During my years of obscurity, I've been learning how to play the harp. I've been thinking about psalms that would be a great way to lead the congregation into worship. But again, he's just an obscure shepherd boy. But God was preparing him to be a worship leader, not just a king. And I think for many of us, uh, yes, uh, there are moments where we feel like we are living in obscurity. When we think about what we do, nine to five, it just seems very mundane. You know, even for myself, I, I shared this maybe in the years past. Uh, but yeah, like growing up uh, in university years, like my conviction for ministry was becoming very strong. The calling was just undeniable. And I had some friends in university as well who had a similar type of mindset, similar type of conviction and calling. And, you know, after university, they went directly into seminary. And, um, yeah, I guess, I guess our priorities are a little different than most people. But I was very jealous. <laughs> I was very jealous that they went to seminary. And for me, I felt like my calling wasn't to go directly to seminary, even though I really wanted to. Like, I, I was itching to learn and to read and all that stuff. But for me, my calling was I needed to work. Um, you know, part of it was I if, if I'm going to be a pastor, I need to be able to identify with people who actually work. Uh, another part of it is I felt like I had some character flaws that I needed to work on, like work ethic and just learning how to communicate and learning just basic skills that you get in a workplace. And yeah, during those years, uh, you know, my friends, they would like, you know, I, I would see the things that they're doing at church and ministry. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for them. But at the same time, I'm a little jealous. And I just wish, oh, man, like, uh, maybe I made the wrong decision. And on the other hand, there are people who are saying, you know, like, I've, I've met a lot of people who said they have a calling and they end up working. And then they end up getting a lord by vocational success. And they can't turn away from the money. So I've seen a lot of people, they abandon their calling. So there is that cloud over my head where I'm, real, I'm, think, I'm second guessing myself. I'm thinking, am I actually being faithful? Maybe I should just quit and just go right into seminary. And you know, like I'm working and I'm enjoying work for the most part, but every, I would tell my wife uh, every morning, as much as I love work, 
Uh, and working was just uh, intellectually very stimulating for me. Every morning when I showered, uh, I would think, is this a day that I should quit? Because, like, literally, I would be thinking about it every single day. And, uh, you know, while we were working, we ended up having uh, two, two kids, two of our children, Jude and Juliet, were born. And, you know, with Jeannie as a resident um, down in the States, like, you don't get any time off. So all of the brunt of raising the newborn fell on my shoulders. And, yeah, it was not easy. Um, times where, like, I, I, I literally felt like a single parent. And no disrespect to single parents, but if you looked at the way we lived our lives with those two newborns, it, that's basically what it was. And taking care of the newborns, trying to sleep train them, changing their diapers, trying to figure out how to feed them, how to transition into solids and all these different things, allergies, like all these things. Like I was just wondering like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I, I, if I'm called to be a pastor, like why am I busying myself with work and these things and how is it ever gonna translate? And yes, during those years, as much as I enjoyed work, there were a lot of seasons of discouragement, uh, feeling like maybe, maybe I'm not called or, or whatever. And, you know, in hindsight, hindsight is always 2020. but when I think about the route that I took, uh, I think that was the best preparation. Because, again, like, a lot of ministry, most of us are working. How can I empathize with somebody who is experiencing politics at work, unfair, unreasonable deadlines. How can I pray for you? How can I disciple you if I've never really experienced that myself? A lot of us, we're stay-at-home parents. And again, that is a vocation that is such a worthy calling. And even with children's ministry, like all the stresses that come from that, how will I know what those stresses actually are unless I live those things out myself? And in many ways, as much as I'm thankful for seminary training, I'm thankful for the books that I've read, the conversations that I've had with professors, like all those things are obviously needed. Like I, I don't want to underestimate those things. But really, a bulk of my preparation and me maturing is those things that I thought were completely useless. Uh, if I didn't go through that, I, I don't know what I would be like, but you would not want to be around me because I would be so unrealistic, so unreasonable, just completely living in cloud nine. I needed that. And, you know, this is not just a testimony of Elijah. It's not just a testimony for Israel and Moses and King David and for myself. This is probably a testimony for all of you guys as well. I think, you, even from your own lips, as I've been connecting with some of you guys, as we've been talking about the sermon series, you've been sharing with me, wow, like this makes so much sense of why I had to go through that season. And this really reassures me that even in this season right now, yes, this is a season of obscurity. This is a season of uncertainty. I don't really see how who I am is going to converge in this season. But I trust that God knows what he's doing. Because let me tell you, with Elijah, the first day of being fed by ravens might, might have been really great. But by the 21st day, by the 36th day, by the 49th day, again, these are just random days, like, how much more can you learn about God? After being fed by the widow by that jar, yes, after the seventh day, that, that's great. Okay, God, you've convinced me. But after the 134th day, 
okay, God, can you show me something new? But that's not the way God matures us. Uh, And I think for many of us, yes, I don't want to underestimate the discomfort that we're experiencing. And yes, there is uncertainty. And yes, we should talk about it and process those things. But as we talk and process those things, it needs to be under the assumption that if we are in Christ, if we are God's people, that season that we're experiencing, as uncomfortable as it is, it's not an accident. And it's definitely not a sign that God is distant. If anything, God is using this to mature us, just like any good parent would do for their children. Just what God has been doing throughout the pages of Scripture as well. You know, the, the last point that I want to emphasize, um, that's going to be, I just want to tease it here, and that's going to be fully fleshed out next week, is uh, Elijah's, again, this is a height of his faith, his boldness, and very heroic. We should be inspired. We should be challenged. Not knocking on Elijah. But we see some signs of some, some of a sin, of some character flaws. Um, and again, I'm not saying this to knock on Elijah. I'm saying this to encourage us. And this is another spiritual window of another facet of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I think it was uh, our brother Mike who mentioned, yeah, it's kind of weird that uh, Elijah would say that he is the only prophet where the passage earlier, Obadiah mentions, hey, I'm like you. I'm on your side, bro. And and how is Elijah going to just say, I'm by myself? And Obadiah even said, I've hid a hundred prophets. And that's repeated twice. And again, whenever anything is repeated in Scripture, it's probably important. And let's just read this really quickly. Uh, So chapter 18, uh, starting in verse uh, 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who is over the household. Now, parenthetically, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. He's on your side, Elijah. You're not, by your si- you're not by yourself. He's on your side. Verse 4, And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and fed them with bread and water. Scripture repeats this. And he says, uh, I think it's in verse 13. Let me just double check. Yeah, verse 13, Obadiah is telling Elijah, has it not been told, my Lord? This is a famous, when he says, has it not been told, it means it's a famous story. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in the cave and fed them with bread and water. Uh, I mean, Elijah knows he's not by himself. And yet, when he does this final showdown, he wants to go out of his way to say, I, only I remain only I. I am the hero of this story. And it's, um, we're going to flesh this out later because, you know, just as a sneak preview, Elijah is soaring with confidence, with swagger, and all of us, we should be inspired and challenged by this for sure. The drought ends. Rain comes forth. Elijah is a hero of the day. Ahab tells Jezebel, guess what? We have rain. The prophets of Baal, they failed. It's Elijah. It's his God. He is Lord. Sneak preview. Jezebel just says, I'm going to put that man to death. I'm going to 
He's nothing. And as soon as Elijah hears of Jezebel's assertion, does Elijah, do you see that same swagger? No. Elijah crumbles apart. He absolutely crumbles. Everything goes out the window. And then when God tries to minister and counsel Elijah, the thing that he repeats is, I'm the only one. God, I'm the only one. God is so gentle. He doesn't rebuke him. And we're going to unpack all this in the coming weeks. But God says, you know, there is a remnant. Obadiah told you. I have a remnant of prophets. You're not by yourself. Stop trying to play the hero. And, you know, again, this isn't me knocking on Elijah. This is really another spiritual window into the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God doesn't just use people who can be prepared and trained, and once they're trained, they're flawless. That's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of Elijah. He uses people who are broken, who are weak, fickle, trains them up, matures them. They have these moments of victories, but even in their moments of victories, they still have character flaws. Even in their moments of miracles, they still have the sin problem. And God still chooses to do miracles through and in his people, despite all of that. God knows. God's not surprised. God knows, Elijah, I know you're soaring high. You got that swagger. But I know just in a few pages later, you're going to crumble. And your faith in me, once again, is just going to crash down. But I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to prepare you to become the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And I will restore you, despite these character issues. You know, for those of us who are in Christ, his love for us is not dependent on how mature we can be and how rock solid our faith can always be. No, God knows. God will answer your prayers. God will stage a breakthrough in your life. God will perform miracles. God will use you in powerful ways. God will use you in ways that are beyond your imagination. Despite the fact that we still have sin problems. Despite the fact that we still have character flaws. Because God sees us beyond that season. And, you know, for some of us, uh, you know, as a pastor, it's always easy for me to talk about, to preach to those who are struggling. You know, on the one hand, there are people who are struggling. Don't, don't be discouraged. God, God loves you. He's faithful. His, his plans are, are wise. Trust in him. It's a little trickier to preach those who aren't struggling who are experiencing victories, who are already experiencing miracles, who are already at 1 Kings 18 version of Elijah where they are just soaring rock solid and they're like, I don't need you to preach at me. I'm fine. Look at me. I'm doing these wonderful things. Look at my work. Look at my family life. Look at my house situation. Look at my finances. I'm, I'm soaring high. God's even using me. And yes, I want to celebrate with you. I do. But this is why repentance is so important. It's because even if God is using you, it's not because you are flawless. It's because of what Christ has done for you. You still have these character flaws. You still have, and there will be another season. There will be a Jezebel in your life of a period of discouragement where it's going to all come crashing down. And in those moments, God's going to say, it's my faithfulness. It wasn't because of your swagger. It wasn't because of your confidence or your heroic 
attitude, but it's because of my grace. It's because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. You know, one of the questions that came up in uh, one of the small groups, um, I, I love questions, so if you have any questions, ask your small group leaders, and they'll do a great job of uh, answering them or forwarding them to me. But one question I think was, was great is, what exactly is repentance? And why is repentance so important? And, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about repentance. And, you know, we've, we've, there are different ways of looking at it, but one way that's really helpful is repentance is when we recognize um, and see the need for a change because there is something about us that either displeases or dishonors God. We both recognize and we see the need for change because there's something about us that is displeasing or dishonoring to God. And, you know, the emphasis that I want to lay here is, is, is it's a relational thing. It's not, repentance isn't like we have a standard of, like I have a standard of who Jason should be. And my standard is Jason should never be late. Therefore, like I want to be very punctual. And if I'm late, I'm going to like, oh, I'm really sorry. But I'm not really sorry to God. I'm really sorry to myself because it's my own standard. It's my own self-image. And I think a lot of us, we kind of live like that. We have our own self-image. And we have our own standard. We want to fulfill that standard, you know, because we have a reputation. We care about how people look at us. That's not the type of change that I'm talking about. The type of change is, is it either dishonors or displeases God. It's a relational thing. It's I don't like being late because I think it doesn't portray God well. I don't want to be late because I think it dishonors God. Like when it's that, that's repentance. The other thing is just self-righteousness. And, you know, it's a relational thing. And why is repentance so important? And it's not a curse word. It's not a bad thing. It's not something that pastors say because they're mad. It's a glorious, joyful thing. It's a gift. The reason being is because if we are walking with God, who is absolutely holy, without sin, and he cannot tolerate sin, and we ourselves are finite, sinful beings, then it's just a matter of time, maybe a matter of nanoseconds, where we do something, say something, think something that is contrary to his holiness. It's just oil and water, right? I mean, it's, it's not like I'm picking on anybody. That's just the way it is. If he is absolutely holy and perfect, and we are still struggling in sin, then it is inevitable that we recognize, okay, I need to change this, and this is displeasing and dishonoring to God. It's inevitable. We see this in any relationship. And the reason why repentance is so important is a lot of us, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, we can say, yeah, I, I walk with God. I walk with God. But in our relationships with God, we disregard his holiness. We kind of pick and choose. We cherry pick attributes of God that whatever suits our agenda so that we can just go on and live our own merry way. We say, God, Jesus, you are my savior. You are my ticket to heaven, but you're not my Lord. The Lord of my life, that's me. I get to live the way I want to live. Jesus, you're my savior. I'll sing about that on Sunday services. But Lord, ah, uh, not so much. And when Jesus is only your Lord, or I'm sorry, only your Savior and not your Lord. 
If God is just a provider and you're a miracle worker, then yeah, you're probably not going to repent much, right? You're just going to say, gimme, 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 gimme. You're not doing this fast enough. You're not doing that fast enough. And I think that is a, well, not, it's not I think, that is a spoiled child. You know, the, the whole parent-child metaphor, that is a spoiled child. I don't care how old that child is. That child could be 30 years old. Still spoiled, still so entitled. If God is our faithful parent, not a single one of us will be raised as a spoiled child. And one of the ways that we combat that is repentance. Again, if he is truly holy, and if we are truly sinful, yes, he is our Savior. I want to celebrate that, but he's also our Lord. There has to be moments where we are repenting. If we are not repenting periodically, then we really have to question, are we walking with the Lord? And that's why repentance is so important. That is why repentance is something that we see throughout Scripture. How else can a holy God fellowship with sinful creatures like us? And again, repentance is not a curse word. It's not not because I'm mad at anybody. It's, as Romans says, it's out of God's kindness that he leads us to repentance. And it's through repentance that we are able to appreciate his grace, his love. So hopefully that can help us because I know we've been talking about that a lot. Well, at this point, let's, uh, let's close this time of the word. Uh, I'm going to ask all of us to just rise uh, because, again, this is, uh, these sermons are not, you know, teach me something new. Teach me something interesting. But it's more, I want to hear what God has to say about me. I want God to speak to me. This is a, a relational thing. So if we can just take a moment and... Um, Let's just pause and reflect upon what God may be placing on our hearts. It's probably a mixture of of a few things. I think for some of us, God is encouraging you. Remember, he is sovereign. These idols of Baal, these idols of financial prosperity, these idols of relational fulfillment, yes, those are good things, but only God provides. Is our absolute trust in every aspect of our lives in him trust in him. Maybe God is saying, your season of obscurity, don't worry, he's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He sees you beyond the seasons. Or maybe you're experiencing victories and praise God. Yes, we should celebrate. But even in the midst of your victories, maybe God is reminding you the need for repentance, the need to not just be so overtaken by favorable circumstances, but to also have moments where you can really reflect and, and um, think about your relationship with him. So I'm just going to allow all of us to kind of pray, silently reflect, and allow the Spirit to minister to us.
you know, if the Spirit is uh, leading you to pray, then please just uh, interact with Him. You know, that's what church service is all about, is to connect you to God. Um, you know, before others, um, you know, I really love the song that we sang earlier, God is Able. And, you know, the reason why we are so confident that our God is faithful despite seasons of obscurity, despite our character flaws, is because of what He has done for us through Jesus. We are His people. He will never let us go. Never. We can wave our fists against Him. We can go through years of rebellion. He will have His way in us. He will be faithful because Jesus has cleansed our sin and filled us with His very own spirits. So we can sing and celebrate, God, You are able. You will never fail in my life. You are for me. You are not against me. You will always go before. You will never leave me. Not because I'm a faithful Sunday school boy or girl, but because I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that even though I am woefully short of your standard, and I will forever be, nothing can ever erase the blood of Jesus that covers over me. And it's by his blood that I come and I sing this song. So, uh, yeah, if you want to continue to pray, uh, please do so. But for others, let's celebrate that our God is powerful. He's stronger than Baal. He's stronger than the idols of this world. He alone is able. So let's sing about that.